0: Um, chapter 3 verses 10 to 17 starting from verse 10 but you Timothy certainly know that I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is you know my faith my patience my love and my endurance you know how much persecution and suffering I've endured you know you know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch Iconium and Lystra But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have been given and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses uses it to prepare and to equip his people to to do every good work. While
1: I've got you in your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 7, because that's what we're going to be looking at today. This reading is not what I'm going to be teaching today, but it is relevant, as we'll see later on. So we're going to be teaching through Acts chapter 7. The reason I didn't get Kumbi to read all the way through Acts chapter 7 is it's huge. It's about 60 verses. It takes maybe 10 to 15 minutes just to read through it. We are going to cover the entire chapter today. So uh, put your seatbelts on and get ready for the ride of your life. I might pray first, if that's okay. You guys happy to join me as we pray for our time together in the Word. We we just thank you, Father, for your presence with us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you are moving, as Julie said, that whenever two or three are gathered together in your name, there are you in their midst, and so we know that you're here. And Lord, we praise you for your grace. That means you would come and spend time with us, the least deserving. Father, I invite you to teach us now. By that same Spirit, teach us, lead us, guide us, convict us, encourage us, meet each of us where we're at right now, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. There's a story of a lady called Perpetua. She was 21 years old. She lived in a place called Carthage in northern Africa. Carthage is modern-day Tunisia. It was part of the Roman Empire. And in the year 201 AD, this lady Perpetua, Was arrested for being a Christian. Uh, Her and her slave, her servant actually, uh, and some friends had been meeting together for Bible studies, getting ready to be baptized. And uh, they were arrested by the Roman authorities and put in prison. While Perpetua was in prison, her father came to visit her to plead with her to give up her faith. Uh, perpetua said i can't do that <laughs> this is not something i choose it's who i am and so she held onto her faith she had a a one-year-old baby that she was continuing to breastfeed while she was in prison uh, she had loved ones she had friends and they gave her many opportunities to recant on her faith and to give up what it was that she held so dearly to namely the truth of jesus christ and she declined every single one. Eventually, they decided that they weren't gonna get anywhere with her, so it was time for her to die. So they took her to the arena, along with her friends, and set the animals loose on Perpetua. She was injured, but the animals didn't kill her, actually. Eventually, a Roman centurion came and ran her through. Perpetua wrote a diary of her time in prison, which we still have today, actually. Uh, It was very influential on the early church. This is a a woman who uh, was actually well-to-do, had nothing really to gain in worldly terms from following Jesus, but she could see a reality that was beyond the reality that we are aware of with our five senses. My question today is, How do we get that kind of courage? The kind of courage that really changes the world and changes people around us. Well, the passage we're looking at today is going to answer exactly that question. We're also going to see, though, some possible threats to that courage in the people that our protagonist faces off with today. And what we'll see today is that there are some lessons, some very clear lessons to learn from Stephen's life and death. In our, in our series, as we go through Acts, we're calling this series, uh, To the Ends of the Earth. And these lessons that Stephen teaches us are lessons that will help us to fulfill that ministry of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So our topic for today's message is Lessons from Stephen. And what I think we'll see is that there are four key things that this man will teach us. And I'd like you to keep an eye out for these three things as we go through the text today. They're number one, life in the spirit. Number two, scripture in the heart. Number three, trust in Jesus. And number four, grace in everything. So three key lessons. But at the same time, the pure length of this chapter, as I said, is going to make it a challenge for us to, uh, to get through it. Unfortunately, it's not the kind of chapter you can easily divide over two weeks, because the vast majority of this chapter is actually a sermon, a single sermon from Stephen. Stephen. Uh, and it's 60 verses long, as I said. So we're not going to get bogged down in the detail of the sermon today. Instead, we're going to kind of power walk our way through it. Do you remember power walking? Do you remember that phenomenon? I don't, I don't know if they do it anymore. I remember the first time when I was a kid and I saw someone power walking, I thought, man, that person is angry. They're walking like this. And they had the little weights and the, the get up, you know, the lycra, the whole lot. Anyway, I, di- I, I di- 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 divert myself. But as an, we're going to power walk, you know, it's too, it's too... I don't want to not put enough detail into it, so I don't want to run through it. I don't just want to plod through it because we'll be here for two hours. But basically, as a way of an outline, um, this section is divided up into two... This passage, this chapter is divided into two sections. Uh, you can see the bulk of Stephen's speech in verses 1 to 53, and, uh, and the rest of it is Stephen's death in verses 54 to 60. This speech from Stephen, this sermon from Stephen, is really a narrative summary of the Old Testament with special attention to the failures of Israel through their history. Mostly we're going to read through it. I'll give a little commentary as we go. Our intent is not to explore every historical claim that's made here, but to see the case it makes and why it's relevant to this situation that Stephen finds himself in. And we want to ask ourselves a few questions. What are the lessons that the Sanhedrin should be learning from Stephen? What are the lessons for the early church and what are the lessons for us today? But if all I do is explain what it means to the original audience, if all I do is give you a great context and an understanding of the text, if that's all I do, then I think my mission will have failed today. Because what I really want for us to do, as we do every week, is to sit under the Word of God to hear as a community and as individuals exactly what it is that God wants to say to us today. This is why we teach verse by verse through the Bible. Not that it's the only way, it really isn't. We still need systematic theology, we still need apologetics, we still need bibliology, we still need all of these things. But there's something about verse by verse teaching that forces us to look at what God has given us and everything that God has given us. With that in mind, let's set the scene for what's happening in this story today. So we're in a section in the book of Acts. The Acts itself is the record of the major events of the first 30 years of the church. And we're talking about this guy, Stephen, who has just been appointed as a deacon. That's a, that word just means servant, a deacon of the church. And John shared last week that Stephen reflects Jesus in three ways, in service, in speech and in stature, in, in his demeanor itself. And I agree, he's a standout character in the way he conducts himself and also in what we know of his inner life. Now at this point in the story, Stephen has been falsely accused. He'd been speaking publicly and he caught the attention, attention of a group of religious leaders who basically felt threatened and so they grab him and drag him before the Sanhedrin. Now, if you were with me a few weeks ago, uh, when, when the two apostles faced the Sanhedrin, you'll remember that the Sanhedrin is not just this religious group. It's actually a social clique. It's a, the upper echelons of society itself. They are the, the rulers of Israel just under Rome. They, they govern not just religious life, but all life. So these guys are powerful. This is not just a cushy little group to sit before. This is not, you know, I'm going to sit before a group and then leave because they don't like me and just go somewhere else. No, this is, this is life and death stuff. And they've hit him with these drummed up charges. So how does he respond? Not with defensiveness. Actually, Stephen responds in the Spirit. Now, remember how Stephen has just been described by Luke in chapter 6. It says he is full of faith and the Holy Spirit in chapter 6 verse 5. It says he was full, full of grace and power in chapter 6, verse 8. And it says that they, that is the Sanhedrin, couldn't resist the wisdom and the Spirit with which he spoke. That's the Holy Spirit again. He is in the Spirit. In other words, we can know that in this passage, what Stephen is saying is the exact truth that God wants him to be saying. And so that's the first lesson from Stephen. He's operating in the Spirit. We'll come back and we'll talk about that a bit later, but see that it undergirds all that he does. But this is also a recurrent theme throughout the whole book of Acts. In fact, so much so that a lot of commentators say it shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what we see chapter by chapter by chapter is the Holy Spirit moving people to do this, taking people here, stopping people here, empowering people here, filling people here, coming upon people over here and moving people over and over and over again. And Stephen is a prime example of what that means for us as Christians to be led by the Holy Spirit. But we see that Stephen is charged falsely. And instead of simply defending himself, he uses the opportunity to make a divine Countercharge. So let's get into the text. Acts chapter 7, there's some Bibles up the back if you don't have one today. Acts chapter 7 verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? Namely, the two charges of blasphemy, by number one speaking against the temple and number two speaking against Moses or the law, they're kind of synonymous. Keep these two charges in mind as we go through speaking against the temple and speaking against the law, speaking as Moses. Verse 2, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, Stephen doesn't recount from Adam that would be the history of mankind. That's not his purpose. His purpose shall become clear as we go, but we see that it begins with Abraham. So who's Abraham. Well, he's the father of the nation of Israel. Verse 4, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child at that time. So, says Stephen, you think this temple is so important, but not only did Abraham, the one who is the father of your own race, not only did Abraham not have a temple, he didn't even have any of the land of Israel. That in itself should give these leaders pause. They are so in love with the temple, they've forgotten what it means that God actually relates to people, not to places. Genesis fifteen six says, and it says it in Hebrews as well, that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Stephen continues, verse 6, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. So there's mentioned this 400 years of displacement Again, we see that God's people would still be God's people, even when spending hundreds of years in a foreign land. Verse 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve. This nation is Egypt, of course, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. We'll get to the names in a sec. But why focus on circumcision? Well, you see, circumcision was the outward sign that marked Israel as belonging to God through covenant with God. That is, through special agreements. And it would occur hundreds and hundreds of years before any actual possession of the land, before any temple. Now, Justin here, Stephen here, has spent a bit of time then on Abraham, I think for two reasons. First, Abraham does represent all Israel in a very special way to Stephen's audience and he's trying to break through to them in that point of commonality. But second, it really demonstrates so well the fact that the relationship of God with his people was never about temples and land or even about laws. So, Stephen answers one of his charges of speaking against the temple by showing that his opponents are actually idolizing the temple. Can you see that? And I think there's a lesson for us in this as well. It's possible that we can worship the means of God's grace rather than God Himself. Whether that's a temple, or a particular church brand, a kind of music, a spiritual gift, or even the scriptures themselves, Yes, they are the perfect revelation of God, but none of these things are actually God. It is not the Father, the Son and the Holy Scriptures. We need to remember that God Himself is the only thing, the only being worthy of worship. So that's Abraham, and that's the first charge initially refuted of speaking against the temple. But as the second charge of Stephen... Is brought up rejecting Moses and the law, he begins here to build a case and it's basically this, it is not Stephen who has spoken against the law, it is the people of Israel who have done this repeatedly, under the influence of her own leadership. And what I want us to do is to try and see the analogy that Stephen's building here with the examples he chooses, first with Joseph. Now the family tree looks like this, we might have actually a, a slide for that, uh, no, actually, don't worry about it. I, I think I took it out. The family tree is basically this. You can imagine it in your head Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Isaac, Abraham's son. Jacob, Isaac's son. Okay, that's pretty easy from there, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then from Jacob, you have 12 sons. 12 sons. So these guys are called the patriarchs altogether. Uh, one of those 12 sons is someone called Joseph. Okay? Let's get into verse 9, and the patriarchs, that is, in this instance, that's the other brothers of Joseph, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favour and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. There's a couple of different records of this. Some say 70. The difference is Joseph's family, whether it's included or not. And Jacob went down into Egypt. And he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So do you see what's happening here? Here we see Israel rejecting a saviour that God gave to deliver them, Joseph. That's case number one. Now let's look at case number two, Moses. But as we do, you can see where this trend is leading. Who was all this building to? It's building to Jesus, okay? As a bit of a a, a little point on the history, you've got these hundreds of years after, well, it will say it here, after Joseph, okay? Before Moses comes along, while Israel is in captivity in Egypt. Verse 17, but as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. I love this because you know who's writing the original version of this? is Moses, right? So it's Moses saying Moses was beautiful in God's sight. <laughs> kind of like how John says, that, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. Um, love it. Just, just dead honesty, right? And uh, he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Interestingly, um, Moses also says he was the most humble man on earth, right? Um, do you, you know that? Humility is not calling yourself bad when you're not. Humility is having a right view of yourself, actually. Just a little, little aside there. Um, and when he was exposed, this is, uh, this is Moses. So he's brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So we see now the second saviour, Moses, sent by God to his people. He comes on the scene as God prepares uh, to fulfill the promise of land that he made to Abraham, right? And he was born in a time of horrible persecution where all the male children are being killed under Pharaoh. But see, Moses is first sheltered by his parents and then rescued by none other than the daughter of this king, the Pharaoh herself. He's allowed to be nursed by his natural mother for a little while, and then he's raised in the temple, in Egyptian high society, effectively. He's given everything he needs. He's given an education, multiple languages, the whole kit and boodle. And how will, how will Israel respond to this second messenger that God has sent to them. Let's see, verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it's a long time to wait, isn't it? It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand Those parallels with Jesus are mounting, aren't they? But Stephen continues. Now, when 40 years had passed, that's another 40 years, an angel, that word means messenger, appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer, get that, a ruler and a redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Did you catch that? God says, I will send you. Moses comes to rescue and to rule. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And is subsequently rejected. Yet, verse 36, this man Moses led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, get this, It's revolutionary. Moses says, God will rise up for you, raise up for you a prophet, like me, from your brothers. Verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So we get the identity of the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel. Note, Moses mentions one who would be raised up just like him. It's interesting, isn't it? But now Moses, despite his initial rejection, has actually led the people out. He's done all these miracles. He's, he's proven his power, the power of God through him. And now he's speaking oracles from God himself. And how is he received now? They, they accept him, don't they? Yeah? They say, okay, he's good, we'll follow him now from here on. Wrong. Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, the place where they're in slavery, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. Moses is literally gone a few weeks. He's up on the mountain... Actually, talking with God. And they're like, oh, we don't know what happened to him. Yeah, no, he's gone. Yeah, not sure. Um, I mean, God, you know, part of the Red Sea, he did all those, you know, plagues, he rescued us, he's giving us manna, you know, all these things. Um, but do we think we want to follow a golden calf now? Verse 41 They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This is interesting in the light of the case Stephen is building for the leaders idolizing the man-made temple, isn't it? Especially when you look forward, if you have a sneaky peek at verse 48, it says, um, Stephen quotes Solomon as saying that the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. See the link? Verse 41. And they, offer, they made a calf in those days, rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship, verse 42, the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you, bring me, did, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? That's quoted from Amos. Verse 43, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. It's rhetorical, the question is rhetorical. They didn't worship God for the 40 years in the wilderness. They went on worshipping the other gods the entirety of those 40 years, carrying all that paraphernalia with them. So not only did Israel reject God's messenger and God's saviour, they rejected God himself by worshipping false gods. It's really interesting, I think, to see where Stephen is going with this, but as a quick side note, we see here evidence of the fact that the worship of any being outside of God himself has a demonic basis. It's probably what's meant by the host of heaven. Um, You can look more into that in Deuteronomy, but an alternative might be that they're worshipping the sun, the moon, and the stars, but I think the better interpretation is they're they're given over to worship. The host of heaven is is the underlying demonic forces that are underlying these other gods. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that they had seen, that he had seen. So Stephen saying here, you took up the tent of Moloch, even though you had your own divinely designed tent or tabernacle, it's the same word. And given that you had this tent, you literally had no excuse not to recognize God's presence with you. So Stephen here has tied the two countercharges together. Number one, idolizing the temple. And number two, rejecting God's messengers are the two key elements of the larger underlying problem here, namely rejecting God himself. Now we're starting to see the second lesson we learn from Stephen. What about this guy's command of scripture? I mean, he gets it, he doesn't have an iPad. He doesn't have notes. He doesn't have a stone tablet even he's got nothing he goes up this is from memory from Stephen and he's got all of this implanted in his heart he knows his scripture if I asked you right now to stand up here and to give a summary of the full gospel message giving scriptural references giving interpretation Old Testament New Testament history of Israel would you be able to do it and some of you would give it a red hot go this, I think, is an encouragement to us. We'll come back to this quality a bit later. But, but keep looking how our Stephen handles the Scriptures and his intimate knowledge of them as we go through. And he continues with the history lesson for this Sanhedrin, this council, that's the same word. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it, that's the tabernacle, in with Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So Joshua comes, the Exodus is around 1452, something like that. Joshua comes in, you know, 40 years, they're wandering the desert. So about 1410, something around those, those kind of times, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Stephen skips over then this period of the judges that occurred between Israel arriving in the land and God setting up a monarchy which he set up with uh, initially Solomon in 1050 and then David in 1010. About 350 years we miss of the judges but then after Saul comes this next king, King David, right? God's appointment rather than man's appointment. Let's keep going. So it was until the days of David, that is that they continued with the tent of meeting, David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. You know, God was actually happy with a tent. Did you know that? God was happy with a tent. He never demanded a temple. He never really asked them to build him a temple. But David wanted a temple because that's what other people were doing and God honored, because his intention was good, God honored him in that. Um, But it wasn't David who built the temple, it was Solomon, as we see in verse 47. That's David's son and his heir who built the house for him. Yet yeah, listen to this, verse 48, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Verse 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen here is bold and is crystal clear. Your obsession with the temple is misplaced. God never needed to live in a man-made home. He's saying to these guys, God is too big to fit inside your box. And he goes on now with a killer blow. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Remember, circumcision was the physical or the public sign of belonging to God. He's saying that your heart says that you do not belong to God. And then he doubles down, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Note he says your fathers, not our fathers. He's not talking about a physical descendancy here. After all, Stephen himself is Jewish, remember that. He is saying that you had the same heart as those who rejected Moses, who rejected Joseph, and who rejected Jesus. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you, he says, have now betrayed and murdered. You, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I think it's safe to say he's not angling for an invite to the next Tupperware party, right? Stephen's defense turns out to be a history of the failure of the leaders of his beloved people from the time of Joseph and continuing until right now, including and especially those leaders standing in front of him in this very moment. And for a second, there is complete silence in that room. The tension in the air is palpable. You could hear a pin drop. People are reeling trying to understand what Stephen has just said about them. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. When people are confronted with a painful truth, they'll respond in one of two ways. Either they'll respond in defensiveness, or else they'll respond in humility. In this case, they chose the former. And that defensiveness found its outlet in anger. In fact, Luke, Luke says that they were enraged. Sometimes the people who are the most angry are the things who hear things that are the closest to home. No, they haven't yet moved physically. They're grinding their teeth at this stage. But then... Stephen has something truly incredible happen to him and this is phenomenal verse 55 but he that is Stephen full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God there it is again full of the Holy Spirit Remember from Acts 2 that all Christians are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Every single believer here is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That doesn't ever go away. It never goes away. We're told throughout the New Testament, though, to pursue the Spirit-filled life. It's clear that this is what Stephen has been doing. The evidence is everywhere. But there is this other feeling that comes at times within the prerogative of God, It happens to those who are truly and fully committed to God's will for them and especially in moments where the gospel message is on the line. It's not manufactured by people. It remains God's prerogative to fill and to empower people as He sees fit. Yeshua filled, Yeshua indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but God will fill you when He sees fit to fill you for the purpose that He has given you. You could preach a whole sermon on this verse, honestly. We don't have time for it now, but just to say that this is a stunning picture of the three-in-oneness of God as well. We see the Father, which is usually what is meant by the simple word God in the New Testament. The Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and His relationship as one perfect being to fallen mankind. It's stunning. But what I want to do now is just to sit with this word glory for a second. Glory, that's doxa in Greek. Those who've been around for our series in Ephesians will have heard me say this before, but basically glory in the New Testament is a combination of three things, three concepts all rolled into one. Number one, there's a sense of fame, a famousness, fame. Number two, there's a a deserved praise that's tied up in that word glory. And number three, there's there's this kind of notion of a, a bright and perfect light. Um, Because glory in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, is used to describe Hebrew words that mean these things. I think the glory of God is a key driving force for Stephen. There is this reality that if you live in light of the glory of God, you will witness the glory of God. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for what? For they shall see God. So as Stephen looks up, I can only assume that he's increasingly aware that his time is coming to an end. He's aware of his mortality, and he's aware of the glory of God the shining light of God's praise. And Jesus at the right hand of the Father, taking the position of precedence, a reminder of his ascension to the place of glory from where he was able to outpour his spirit, as we just saw earlier in Acts. It's as if Stephen is overwhelmed by this reality and he must continue, verse 56, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's interesting is that Jesus is said elsewhere to have ascended to the right hand of the Father and to, sat, to have sat down. It's a picture of, that the work is done for Jesus. So, is this a contradiction? Is Jesus sitting or is standing? Well, I would suggest that it's not a contradiction, that Jesus has been sitting. I think Jesus stood to welcome Stephen, who would be the first martyr, into his presence. See, Stephen can't help but proclaim this glorious reality. Death is imminent, and yet he praises the goodness of God. There's a story about a woman called Lilius Trotter. She was blind. She lived in 19... In 1901, actually, she wrote a devotion. And the devotion had the words, Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus, and look and look at Him, and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Lilius Trotter. Twenty years later, another woman, Helen Lemmel, she's an accomplished popular singer, but she also goes blind. And her husband left her because he didn't want to be with a blind woman. And in 1921, she's sitting in her home and a friend picked up this devotion to read from 20 years earlier and read it to her. turn, full your soul's vision to Jesus and look at Him and look at Him and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from Him. And so out of the story of two blind women came the hymn that we still sing today, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And this is exactly what Stephen did. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this is the first mention of the man who would go on to become first the greatest Jewish persecutor of the early church. But he would also eventually become the apostle to the Gentiles. And he would write more than a quarter of the entire New Testament. Saul, who would later become known as Paul. And he starts as an enemy to God. God is so gracious. That verse that couldn't be read for us earlier was written by this man, Saul, who had become Paul. And I can't help but think that he would be picturing Stephen as he writes these words, that persecution is an inevitability. My persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen demonstrates what it means to truly follow Jesus by mimicking Jesus, even to the point of death. But as John alluded to last week, there are a few ways in which Stephen explicitly reflects Jesus. And in this instance, there are two that are very, very clear. The first, Stephen commends his spirit to Jesus. What's the significance of this? What does it mean to commend your spirit to God? In one word, it means trust. Jesus said, where I go is a house with many rooms, and I have prepared a place for you. Do we take Jesus at his word? Because if we do, it will change everything. When we believe that God has told us what God has told us about our future, it radically changes our present This then is the third lesson from Stephen, to trust Jesus. But the second way in which Stephen is like Jesus in this moment, in the moment of his death, is in this final act of amazing grace. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? He utters as his dying breath, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He pleads that even his murderers would come to know God's grace, that their ignorance would be overcome. How do you have that kind of grace for others? I mean, I have enough trouble showing grace to those that I love half the time, right? How do you show that kind of grace to someone who's killing you, who's picking up stones? To, do you know how it happened? This is what they would do. They would grab the person they were going to stone, and they would drag them out of the city, and they would find a cliff to throw them over to start with. And then they would try and get rocks, and would, and, because the person usually would break a leg and wouldn't be able to move. They get heavy rocks and throw them on the person and then to finish it off they'd throw smaller rocks so stephen's fallen off the cliff his legs probably broken and he's saying lord forgive them don't hold this against them how do we do that it's next level what i'm going to suggest is actually The grace that we see here is a direct result of the three other lessons that Stephen has taught us. See, as we live a life in the Spirit, as we immerse our hearts into the Scriptures, and as we trust in Jesus, our ability, our capacity for grace grows more and more. as we do these three things that grace comes it's the culminations of the disciplines of faith and the relationship with the giver of grace so this is stephen's fourth lesson to us grace in everything how are we going with grace church who can you think of that you have a hard time being gracious toward but remember this the solution isn't just to try harder It's to put these other three lessons into place and see what God does in and through you. So in the way of Jesus, who he now sees Stephen offers forgiveness to those who would harm him, just like Jesus, who while we were enemies with God, died for us, Romans 5. The fact is we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't know that forgiveness, I encourage you, do your business with God today and let someone know about it. So Stephen prays for his enemies. Now, what's amazing here is that it seems that, at least with Paul, Stephen's dying prayer is answered, isn't it? Saul would go on to preach on this kind of grace over and over again in almost every letter that he, that he pens. But the harsh reality is also this, Stephen is killed. Let's sit with that for a second and, and let it sink in. So much for the health and prosperity gospel. This man was nothing but faithful to God. And now his bloody and his bruised body sits lifeless on the ground. It's such a waste. A man who was known for serving and serving and serving and serving for wisdom and for grace. His life is spent on the ground, on the dirt of Jerusalem and he becomes the first of countless Christians through history who would give up their life for the sake of the God whose message they carry and proclaim. The fact is we are called to live peaceably with all as far as it depends on us. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to be ready with an answer for the hope that we have, but there will be times in history, including in our own, when the Spirit will move upon us, upon his people, to stand up and to speak the truth of what Jesus has done of the very fact that we as humanity are responsible for his death on the cross, but that it is that very death that can make us right with God and with the universe. With God, the God of this universe, I should say. But not only that, Jesus, see, through his resurrection, has defeated death as the forerunner of all who would put their trust in him. And sometimes we will see a harvest, but sometimes people will hate us. They will attack us, they will silence and they will cancel us, they will lie about us, they will fire us and financially harm us, they will beat us, they will knock us down, sometimes they will kill us. It's still happening today. It might seem like a foreign concept but there's already at least one person in this room right now who's lost their job for the sake of proclaiming the truth. Even more, there are people in this very room, he may one day lose their lives in service of the gospel. It's heavy. Does it move you to think about that? It moves me. It frightens me. But at the same time, I recognize this deeper truth in the words of the, the famous poet John Donne, English poet, phenomenal. This is what he says He says, One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more, death thou shalt die. But the application, see, goes way beyond this, because whilst not many, if any of us, will be called to physically die for the gospel, we are called to give all of who we are, to give up our lives for the sake of the gospel. Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will, will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. But what will it gain a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So will we learn from this first martyr and seek to live a life of the Spirit, to immerse ourselves in Scriptures, to trust Jesus, to live a life of grace? Because as we do exactly that, it's my belief that we will find ourselves ready to face whatever circumstances might come our way. Our God is bigger than we realize. He cannot fit into a temple made by human hands. He is above and beyond all that we can imagine. So that when you face persecution, Jesus will see you through. When you face resistance and failure, Jesus will conquer. When you face burnout, depression, anxiety and futility, Jesus will be your hope. When you face sickness and loss and loneliness, Jesus will be your comfort. When you face rejection, loss, fear, or when circumstances just seem too overwhelming, Jesus will embrace you in his perfect grace and fold you in his perfect love. The simple truth is that Jesus has entered into your sufferings that you might overcome suffering. Like Perpetua like Lilius Trotter and Helen Lemmel, like Stephen and countless other saints, I believe that God will equip you to face whatever circumstances might befall you. Knowing that even if we should lose our lives, we should actually gain life itself. That these momentary, these transitory hardships do not come close to the eternity we already possess and will possess in the presence of our Creator. And as you continue to live a life for His glory, you will catch glimpses of His glory that we'll one day find the complete fulfillment in His perfect presence. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by Your goodness to us. We are so grateful for Your grace. That means we can come before You. We ask that as we seek to do these things, Lord, as we seek to live a life in the Spirit, Lord, as we seek to to immerse ourselves in your written Word, as we trust in you, and as we show the grace that you've shown us to those around us, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to do that. Father, go before us, equip us, we pray, for the work that you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.